Our scripture this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 29 to 42. Please open your Bibles to Exodus 12, verse 29, and let's hear God's word. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go! Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making yourself known to us. We ask that you implant fear in our hearts, Lord, that we may be attentive to your word with proper reverence and awe. We commend this time to you, Lord God. Please bless it. Use it to accomplish your will, to teach us what you would have us know. Amen. In our passage this morning, God acts in one of the most dramatic, memorable, terrifying, but also hopeful ways in all of scripture. This 10th plague is unlike the other nine. God had promised judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and here we see God make good on his word. There were some who believed God and his promise of judgment, and his offer of mercy, and there were some who did not. The consequences for those who did not believe that God would act were horrific. They were devastating and grievous. But those who took God at his word were spared. This morning, we're going to look at four different groups and four different responses to God's promise of judgment. We're going to look at Pharaoh and his defiance, we're going to look at the Egyptians and their neutrality. We're going to look at the Israelites, their trusting faith. And we're going to look at the mixed multitude and their opportunism. Our passage this morning is not just important. It is also urgent because the 10th plague foreshadows God's final judgment. And likewise, Passover gives us the paradigm to understand the eternal deliverance that Jesus offers us from sin and from eternal death. God has spoken. Just as God promised judgment on Pharaoh, God has promised judgment on each of us. Just as God offered mercy to the sons of Israel, God is also offering us mercy. The question for us this morning is how will we respond to God's promise of judgment? Which of these four groups, which of these four responses, reactions, do we fall under? 
We'll start with the first one, Pharaoh, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go! Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said. Be gone! And bless me also. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the most powerful empire on earth. He is considered by his subjects to be a demigod. Therefore, for our purposes this morning, Pharaoh represents peak human man at the height of his perceived power. Just a little bit earlier in Exodus 10, after the ninth plague, Pharaoh tells Moses and Aaron, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And yet here we have Pharaoh doing the two things he said he wouldn't do. He is meeting Moses and Aaron face to face, and he is not killing them. And moreover, after stubbornly resisting to let God's people go, he is now not only letting them go, he is urging them to leave and to leave quickly. Why the change? Well, this 10th plague, there, when God has acted through this 10th plague, there is a devastating finality to God's action. There is an irreversibility that we hadn't seen before. Up to this point, Pharaoh had resisted God through nine plagues, Pharaoh imagined, if you will, that he was playing chess with God. The first time that Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh with God's demand, God's ultimatum, he, makes, he doubles down and he makes the Israelites work even harder, makes them make bricks without straw. The second time that, Pharaoh and Aaron, that Aaron, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, he has his magicians match wits or try to match wits with Aaron. And then as the plagues start, as the pressure increases, Pharaoh goes from ignoring God, denying God, to negotiating with God. You see, Pharaoh first say that the people can go and then quickly change his mind. Then he says they may go sacrifice to their God, but they must remain in Egypt. Then he says they may go, but they must leave their children behind. They may go, but they must leave their flocks behind. So what Pharaoh is doing is negotiating with God. He is trying to figure out what's the least amount of power I can give up. What's the minimum number of concessions I can give up to appease God, to get God off my back, to make it through this plague. And then as soon as the pressure is lifted, as soon as God lifts the plague, he goes back to enthroning himself, to making himself God king. See, Pharaoh counters every one of God's moves except this one. There is no counter move to this one. God takes all of Pharaoh's movement, all of his thrashing about, and he accomplishes his will nonetheless, just as he said he would. Here we see that exquisite balance between human free will and God's sovereign will. Here now, Pharaoh is bending to God's will. Notice Pharaoh utters the words, as you have said. He says that twice in the passage. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said. Those words, as you have said, they just underscore that Pharaoh's capitulation is total. His humiliation is complete. It reminds us, Proverbs 21 the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And as surely as streams empty into the sea, all human will empties into the sovereign will of God. From the moment God spoke back in Exodus 4, through Moses, and issued his demand, from the moment God said, let my son, my son being Israel, let my son go that he may serve me, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. From the moment that God spoke, it was a done deal. His will would be accomplished. Here, then, is the first 
lesson we can learn from Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have obeyed, could have done as God asked from the beginning. He ends up in the same place at the end, obeying God's will. If he had done so from the beginning, he could have received blessing. Instead, he resists, and he only does so under compulsion. And he leaves behind a trail of destruction and death and suffering. This is the tragedy of sin. The Bible teaches we will all bend our will to God. The question is when? Will we do so now, willingly in repentance and receive blessing? Or will we only do so under judgment, under compulsion, and leave behind so much suffering? You see, Pharaoh thought he was playing chess with God. What he was really doing was presuming upon God's forbearance. He was presuming upon God's patience. And now, his grandiosity is laid bare and his weakness is exposed. When we look at Pharaoh and his stubbornness and how he continues to resist God's power, even in the, in the, with all the signs and the wonders, what's remarkable about Pharaoh is not his stubbornness. What's remarkable about Pharaoh is how relatable he is, how much Pharaoh looks like us. You see, this is the natural state of man. The unredeemed human heart is in rebellion to God. The unredeemed human heart is God's enemy. Over and over in the Exodus account, we see that Pharaoh refuses to recognize God, refuses to recognize God's authority, refuses to submit to that authority. In Exodus 5, Pharaoh responds to Moses and says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, we are all in our hearts Pharaoh. We may not be as blatant about it as Pharaoh, but we in our hearts do not want to recognize God's authority, do not want to recognize that we should submit to that authority. And just like Pharaoh, when we are undergoing a trial, an ordeal, a plague, how often do we then seek to compromise with God, to appease God? How often do we then seek, what is the minimum amount of power I can give up just to make it through this hard time, just to get God to lift the trial? So here again, let us learn through Pharaoh. We will each, if you will, go through nine plagues in life. We will all have seasons of hardship. We will all have difficult days. We will all have periods of misfortune. We will all have times of failing health. We will all have loved ones close to us die. And the question is, how will we respond? Will we respond with total capitulation and complete humility? Or will we be like Pharaoh and try to negotiate our way out of it? Because what is the purpose of the plague? What is the purpose of an ordeal of suffering? But for God to be known, for us to know God. The lesson here is sooner or later, the 10th plague comes for us all. We will all die. Our death warrant was written in Genesis 3. And by the time the 10th plague comes, if we haven't yet capitulated, it is too late. Now, we may object to this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We may say, well, that's not fair. Why does God do that to Pharaoh? But notice what hardening means. As God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh does not become unrecognizable. Pharaoh does not become less Pharaoh-like. As God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh becomes even more Pharaoh-like. And here is another lesson for us, and it is a terrifying lesson. And that is, often, God's judgment is letting us do what we want to do. And God's judgment is letting us be who we want to be. Often, God's judgment is merely withdrawing his restraint. And God's mercy is when he spares us from the consequences of doing what we want to do. God's mercy is when he doesn't let us be who we want to be. Notice the final words that Pharaoh speaks in this portion of the passage. He says, and bless me also. 
the commentaries, there's been some discussion as to what does Pharaoh mean when he says this. So, you know, perhaps it's just a figure of speech, a diplomatic way for Pharaoh to address Moses. Or more likely, Pharaoh is acting out of self-interest. The tenth plague has dealt a mighty blow to Egypt. His kingdom is in disarray. Every single Egyptian family has lost a firstborn. Pharaoh's grip on power is tenuous. And he recognizes that apparently Moses has access to this other power, and he is now in need of blessing from that power. But the commentaries also point out there's no sign of repentance here. There's no other evidence that Pharaoh is repentant. But let's consider for a moment, just for a moment, consider what if Pharaoh is sincere here? You see, in life, sometimes these windows open up where we get to see reality differently, where we get to see reality as it really is. And after this 10th plague, Pharaoh can see he, in fact, has no power. All power is with God. Whatever power Pharaoh has is on loan from God. And he can perhaps perceive dimly that if all power is with God, then he needs to be blessed by that power. He needs to submit to that power and surrender to that power. But after a lifetime of pride, a lifetime of self-love, self-glory, self-importance, self-regard, he can't quite bring himself to submit. So he tries a workaround. So I'll ask Moses to ask for blessing. As quickly as that window opens up, it slams shut. We know just a little bit later in the story, Pharaoh sends forth his chariots. He wants to seize back what he's lost. All that self-love and pride and self-importance comes rushing back. For Pharaoh, it was too late. For us, it is not yet too late. If you are here this morning, if you have not fully capitulated, completely humbled yourself, it is not yet too late. But here is another lesson we can take from Pharaoh, and that is time is short. We always imagine there will be more time. We always imagine maybe someday in the future I will finally fully surrender to God. But as it says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. One day the Lord will no longer be near. After a lifetime of pushing him away, one day he will not be near. Perhaps you've been in a similar place as Pharaoh. Perhaps you've been in that place where you are able to dimly perceive God is the one who has power. I need his blessing. Perhaps you have the understanding. It is God who has the power, and I need to submit to him. What you lack, though, is the will. You might say, well, I'm not one of those persons who can have faith. That's not me. That's them. It's too big a leap to take that leap of faith. It's too heavy a burden. If that is you, plead with the Lord. Plead with God. Ask him to give you faith. Say, Lord, I can't make the leap. I can't do it. Do it for me, God. My heart is too hard. Soften it for me, God. Because as we said, the Bible is very clear here, very consistent in this teaching, and that is, we will all bend our knee before God. Romans 14 says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. The question is not, will you bend the knee to God? The question is, when? When will you bend the knee? Will you do so now, willingly, in humility, and in repentance, and receive blessing? Or will you only do so under judgment, under compulsion, when it is too late? Let's now look at the second group, the second response to God's promise of judgment. That is the Egyptians, starting in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. 
And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Here again, we see another dramatic turnabout. If you go back to Genesis 43, it says the Egyptians wouldn't share a meal with the Hebrews, wouldn't sit at the same table. They considered it an abomination. And now the Egyptians have gone from considering an abomination to share a meal with the Hebrews, with the Israelites, to holding them in favor. The Egyptians have gone from extracting slave labor from Israel to, if you will, paying them back wages, from holding on to them tightly to urging them to leave and to leave in a hurry. The Egyptians have gone from being conquerors who subjugate and plunder to being the conquered, the subjugated, and the plundered. Why the change? That's a very easy question. The passage tells us in verse 33, it's fear. Fear. They say, we will all be dead. But this is fear not only of a God who holds the power of life and death in his hands. This is fear of a God who sees and who knows. That night, the night of the 10th plague, as the Lord moved across the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn of every home, every family, a great cry went out, a cry such as never been heard before. And you can imagine the commotion. You can imagine people running out into the streets to see what is happening. The screams of grief and shock and terror. And saying, my, my, my firstborn has died. And their neighbor saying, my firstborn has died. Wait, over there, who was it that died? Wasn't he the firstborn? The sheep, this goat, weren't they the first to be born in the flock? God's judgment upon Egypt was comprehensive. It says, even the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon was struck down. It reminds us of another time that the Lord God of Israel peered into an Egyptian dungeon, and he saw and he knew. And that is when Joseph was captive. He gave Joseph the key to interpreting dreams. And so the Egyptians must now contend not only with this God who holds this great power, but who is this God who sees everything and who knows? The Egyptians, perhaps they imagined that in the great struggle between Pharaoh and God, that they could be neutral. Certainly, they were aware of the plague. Certainly, they had suffered in the plagues. But perhaps they imagined, well, ultimately, that is a matter between Pharaoh and God. The Egyptians were certainly aware Egypt had enslaved Israel. Egypt was oppressing Israel, but perhaps they imagined, well, that's just the way things are. This is the natural order that there are some masters and some slaves. I have nothing to do with it. For our purposes this morning, the Egyptians represent that second category, that second response to God's promise of judgment, and that is the disinterested bystander. This is not the raving atheist who is angry and railing against God. This is the person who you tell them, the Bible says that all will die and all will be judged for their life. And they say, I'm not interested. I don't believe that. Talk to someone else. I don't care. But here again, the Bible is consistent in its teaching. And that is, there are no neutrals in God's calculus. As it says in Luke 11, Whoever is not with me is against me. And Egypt was most certainly not with the Lord. And so that night, the night of the 10th plague, as the Lord moved across the land of Egypt and the cries went up, who did the Egyptians cry out to? They cried out to their gods. What did they cry out for? They cried out for comfort. My loved one is dead. They cried out for meaning. Why, why, why has this happened? They cried out for hope. Will I ever see my loved one again? And they cried out for safety. Who can protect us from this mighty power? That night, the Egyptians cried out to their gods, but they were met only with silence. Because there is only one I am. There is only one living God, and that is the Lord God of Israel. So the question for each of us, when our night of judgment comes, when we are on the threshold of death and we cry out, as surely we will, when we cry out for comfort, for meaning, for hope, and for safety, 
Who will we cry out to? And will we be met only with silence? Or will we cry out to the one and only living God? Now, before we move on to the third group and the third response to God's promise of judgment, let's pause and ask the question, is this just? Is God's judgment just? Is the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn just? We might initially, from our limited vantage point, our flawed and sinful and mortal point of view, look at this and wonder, is this just? We may even ask, is, this an, is God overreacting here? We know that Egypt enslaved Israel. Egypt was oppressing Israel. We know that Pharaoh had commanded that the newborn baby boys of the Israelites be cast into the Nile. But notice, the passage doesn't say, and God saw this, and so God struck down Pharaoh, and struck down Pharaoh's closest advisors, and all the generals of his army, the taskmasters, and any who had wielded a whip. But God spared those who had been kind to the sons of Israel. That might be what we would expect. That might be what we would call justice. But that's not what the passage tells us. It tells us that God's judgment was comprehensive. Every family in Egypt, from greatest to least, lost a firstborn. So the question is, is this just? Well, the main thing to understand about the 10th plague is that it was a judgment on everyone. It was a judgment on both Egypt and Israel. And that's because it was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Earlier in chapter 12, the Lord says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And we know that both Egyptians and Israelites worshiped the gods of Egypt. If you jump forward to Joshua 24, this is a whole generation after the Exodus. God has taken his people out of Egypt. He has given them the law on Sinai. They have wandered in the desert. That generation has died. The next generation has entered Canaan and through God's power conquered the promised land. And even after all that, a whole generation later, Joshua addresses his people and says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. How pervasive, how deeply rooted must that worship of the gods of Egypt been that even a whole generation later, even after God manifests in the Exodus, manifests in the giving of the law, and manifests in the conquest of the promised land, even after all that, there are some who still clung to the gods of Egypt. See, Israel's problem is the same problem we have. It's not that they didn't worship God. It's not that they didn't worship Yahweh. It's that they also always wanted to worship other gods. In the same way, we can sometimes claim to give our full allegiance to God, only to make room for our own false idols. And so you can be sure, that night, the night of the 10th plague, if there were any firstborn of Israel who were not sheltering under the blood of the Passover lamb, they too would have been struck down, struck dead. So now the question becomes more interesting. If all are guilty, if all are under judgment, why does God then choose to save the Israelites? We get an answer in Ezekiel 20. This is where God himself is recounting the Exodus. And the Lord says, starting in verse 6, on that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name 
that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. The story of Exodus is the story of God making himself known, of the Lord revealing his character in greater and greater depth. And in the 10th plague, we have one aspect of God's character. That is his severe justice, his uncompromising holiness and righteousness. In the Passover, we see another aspect of God's character, perhaps for us a more important aspect, and that is God's abundant mercy. Why does God save the sons of Israel? Because that is who he is. He acts for the sake of his name, and God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. God is a God of covenants, a God who keeps his promises, and he has promised to preserve his people and how does God preserve his people? God is sovereign. God has the right to judge all of us, and indeed he will. And in the same way, God has the right to extend mercy to whom he wishes to extend mercy and by whatever means he chooses. And he has chosen. The mechanism of God's mercy is the blood of the lamb. As it says in Hebrews 9, Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Passover lamb is the mechanism of God's grace. What were the Israelites to do? They were to do three things. They were to kill the lamb, apply the blood on the doorway, and they were to stay inside. They were to shelter under the blood and trust that that was sufficient. They were to believe, to trust, and to obey. Notice God doesn't tell the Israelites I will spare all among you who are righteous, all who have been good. I will spare all among you who have faithfully worshipped me. I will spare all among you who understand what I'm doing and agree with it. No. It's one simple test. Are you sheltering under the blood of the Passover lamb? And so that night, the night of the 10th plague, where again the Lord moved across the land of Egypt, and the great cry went up. The Israelite families huddled in their homes under the blood of the lamb. I don't think the predominant sensation among the Israelites was triumphalism. At last, the Egyptians are getting what they deserve. No. I think that night, as they huddled under the blood and they could hear the cries go up around them, the predominant sensation must have been one of profound gratitude and solemnity. A real sense that were it not for that blood, we too would be letting out a cry tonight. As we said earlier, the Passover was a temporal deliverance. God delivers his people out of bondage in Egypt. But it points to the eternal deliverance that Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, it points to the eternal deliverance that he offers us from sin and from eternal death. So here again, there's a lesson for us. Here again, the Bible is consistent in its teaching. We all in our hearts worship the gods of Egypt. We all in our hearts worship false idols. We all cast our eyes on detestable things. We all have heart in our hearts. As it says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. We need God's offer of mercy as surely as the sons of Israel needed God's offer of mercy that night, the night of the 10th plague. The question for each of us this morning, are you sheltering under the blood of the Passover lamb? Let us now return to our passage and look at the third response to God's promise of judgment. We have the defiance of Pharaoh, the false neutrality of the Egyptians. And now the response of the Israelites, starting in verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. 
so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. There are two or three interesting details in this portion of the passage that illuminate and shed further light on God's character and how he works his salvation. The first detail is the unleavened dough. Why is the dough unleavened? Because they had no time to prepare provisions for themselves, because they were thrust out of Egypt. Why is this important? I think in the people having to leave and leave in a hurry, they don't even have time to prepare the dough. God is showing them that deliverance is entirely his doing, not theirs. They have nothing to do with it. In the same way, God's salvation is by grace. It is something that God does for us, the same way they were thrust out, something God does for us. We do not in any way contribute to it. All we can do is respond with trusting faith. Also, as Pastor Frank taught last week, often leaven is a symbol of sin in the Bible. And God is saying, go, leave your sin behind. Leave your affection for Egypt behind. Leave the world behind and go. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The other really interesting detail is that God tells his people to go before the Egyptians and request of them silver, gold, clothing. Might seem like a strange request. Why does God do this? Well, for one thing, God wants to bless his people. He wants to pay them back and recompense. But I think there's something more profound going on here as well, and that is God wants his people to face their fear. He wants to show them who they should actually fear, and whether it is God or it is man. Up to this point in the Exodus, so many times, the Israelites seem to fear Pharaoh more than they fear God. And so God tells his people, to go before the slave masters, go before those who wield the whip and the sword and ask them for great treasure. God wants them to face their fear. It reminds us of Isaiah 51 where the Lord says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. God is teaching his people they need not fear the wrath of the oppressor. Who they really need to fear is the Lord, their God, their maker. The God who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. The God who holds the power of life and death in his hands. Notice also in verse 36, it says they plundered the Egyptians. And the word plunder here is very interesting. If we look at the Exodus in purely secular terms, what we have here is a slave uprising, a slave revolt. And throughout all of human history, whenever there is a slave revolt, it is incredibly violent. Slaves rise up, slaughter the masters, and then plunder them. But this is a slave uprising unlike any other recorded in human history. The slaves have plundered the masters, and they have done so without violence. Think of how merciful this is. What a great mercy God is showing his people. They can begin their journey to the promised land with great treasure and without blood on their hands, without murder in their heart. Because they trusted the Lord, and the Lord took vengeance for them. So here we have God's people, and they are on a journey. And they are on a journey where? They are on a journey to worship God. Here is the template. Here is the map for the life of the believer. It starts with fear, with the fear of God, 
with the fear that removes all other fear. And from fear, we go to trust, to trusting God's offer of mercy. We go from trust to obedience. We leave behind our old desires, our attachment to the world. We are now sojourners on our way to worship God, worshiping God with great gratitude and with solemn remembrance for the deliverance that God has given us. And now the fourth and final response to God's promise of judgment. That is the mixed multitude in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So who is the mixed multitude? Here the commentaries provide a range of options. This morning we're going to look at just two of them, and they're not exclusive of each other. The first possibility is that mixed multitude includes Egyptians, and it includes Egyptians who saw the signs and wonders and believed, Egyptians who now follow the God of Israel. In Exodus 8, after the plague of gnats, it says, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And perhaps it's not a great leap from going, understanding that it, if that is the finger of God, then perhaps that is a God I need to submit to. In Exodus 9, during the plague of hail, it says, Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So we know that among the servants of Pharaoh, there were those who feared the word of the Lord. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so perhaps there were some who went from fearing the Lord to trusting the Lord and now following the Lord. This is a very hopeful interpretation because we see throughout the Old Testament that God's plan of redemption for humanity is not limited just to his chosen people, but includes the nations as well. And speaking as a Gentile, I'm very glad that it does. And so the mixed multitude of Exodus 12 foreshadows, it's a foretaste of the great multitude of Revelation 7. Where the Apostle John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The second possibility, again, not exclusive of the first, is that the mixed multitude includes other enslaved peoples, other peoples who had been enslaved by Egypt. The 10th plague has struck a mighty blow on Egypt. The kingdom is in disarray. The Israelites are leaving Egypt, and they see an opportunity, and they leave too. These are people who are escaping slavery, but not necessarily following God. This is the preferred interpretation of some Jewish rabbis. They look at the mixed multitude, and they point to it, and they blame the mixed multitude for all the doubting and the backsliding, the constant desire to return to Egypt, even the golden calf. While undoubtedly there's some truth to this, it's also too easy an explanation to blame the mixed multitude. The account in Exodus and Numbers, it tells us plenty about the sinfulness of the Israelites and their own obstinance and disobedience. Here again, we have to remember the Exodus is not a story about good guys and bad guys. It's not a story about the good guys, Israelites, who finally escaped the grasp of the bad guys, Egyptians. No. The Exodus is a story about God's grace and his deliverance in spite of our sinfulness. So for our purposes this morning, the mixed multitude represents this fourth response to God's promise of judgment. This is the wait-and-see crowd, the fence-sitters, those who are long for the ride. This is the group that tells God, yes, God, you parted the Red Sea to bring us out of Egypt. Yes, God, you lead us by a pillar of fire at night. Yes, God, you feed us every morning with manna. Yes, God, you bring forth fresh water from rock. But, 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 we just need one more sign, God, one more sign, and then we can believe, then we can trust. Tragically, we know that what was missing was not one more sign. What was missing was a humble heart. And we know that most of these fall away. How many in the mixed multitude are rescued from bondage in Egypt only to die in bondage to sin? 
Perhaps this is you. Perhaps you're part of the multitude. Perhaps you're part of the crowd. You come to church. You may even go to Bible study. But you haven't yet fully capitulated, surrendered. You're looking for one more sign. You might say, there seems to be something here. There might be something to this God thing. I'm just missing one or two more puzzle pieces. And then I can surrender. But again, what is missing is not a puzzle piece. The evidence for God is all around us. What is missing is a humble heart. The last three verses in our passage speak to the faithfulness of God. And this is important because God has made promises. God has promised judgment upon us. God has offered mercy. And here we see a God who keeps his promises. Starting in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Here the passage zooms out. We get a wider context, and we see God's faithfulness across the centuries, across the generations. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, God promises Abram, later renamed Abraham, God promises Abram to make of his descendants a great nation and to give him a land. And here we see the beginnings of those promises being fulfilled. Earlier in the passage, it said there were 600,000 men in the Exodus. Some commentaries say if you add women and children, it's at least 2 million. God has started to make of the sons of Abraham a great nation, and they are on their way to claim the land that is promised to them. Here we also see the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over the affairs of men. God orchestrates human events to his good pleasure. In Genesis 15, God speaks to Abram and he says, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Here we have the fulfillment of those promises, literally, word for word. The sons of Abram, of Abraham, have been sojourners in Egypt. They have been servants, they have been afflicted, they have been slaves. And now, some 400 years later, God has brought judgment upon Egypt. And they are coming out of that land with great possessions. And notice that group of people who were leaving Egypt, notice how they are described. They are described as the host of the Lord. This is God's army leaving Egypt. God has delivered judgment on Egypt, and he is sending forth his army to deliver judgment upon Canaan. Just a little bit later in that same conversation in Genesis 15, God tells Abram, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And now some 400 or so years later, the iniquity of the Amorites is nearly complete. The cup of wrath has been filled, the host of the Lord are marching forth to deliver judgment upon Canaan. In verse 31, 41, it says, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, and some people have wondered, what does that mean, on that very day? Some commentaries point back to Genesis 47. This is when Jacob renamed Israel. Jacob Israel and his sons first move into the land of Egypt. And it says in verse 6, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Here are the bookends of Israel's sojourn in Egypt. It starts with Israel blessing Pharaoh. It ends with Pharaoh asking Moses for the blessing of the God of Israel, and Moses withholding that blessing. So here again, we see God's faithfulness across the centuries, across the generations, we see God making good on his word to both bless and to curse. God's favor is no longer on the land of Egypt. The question for each of us this morning, where will you be when God's word comes to pass? Will you be under blessing or will you be under curse? Because surely God's word will come to pass. The final verse in our passage, it paints a very beautiful portrait of the faithfulness of God. 
verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Here is a beautiful image of God as the night watch. God standing guard. God peering into the darkness, looking for danger, looking for evil, while his people slumber and sleep. As it says in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 121, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we can, great, we can take great comfort in this image, that on the night of judgment, as the shadow of death moves across the land, God is standing watch. God is watching. God is watching over the evil and the good. God knows who his people are, and he is watching over them and keeping them safe. And in the same way that God is faithful and watchful, he asks his people to be faithful and watchful. The Exodus is God's calling card in the Old Testament. Over and over again, when God speaks to his people, he first reminds them and says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. Now the question is, how do we know that it really happened? Well, as believers, we know it happened because we have so much other evidence in our own lives of a living and active God that if God tells us it happened, we believe it. But recently, it's become fashionable to debate whether there's sufficient evidence for the Exodus. That's a whole other conversation. I happen to think there is. But I think what's more interesting, what's more important, is that's not how God chooses to have the Exodus be known. He could have chosen whatever method he wanted. He could have preserved perfect archaeological evidence. But instead, he chooses something far more wonderful. He chooses to preserve a people and a people who hand down the memory, the remembrance of the Exodus. We saw last week when God institutes the ordinance of the Passover. In Exodus 12, he instructs the parents, the fathers, and he says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The parents are instructed to hand down the memory. Israel certainly does this imperfectly. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, we see that when Israel falls away from God and they come back to God, one of the first things they do is they reinstitute the Passover. We have evidence in the Psalms of Israel trying to be faithful. Psalm 44, O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. My question is, is there any other event from the Bronze Age that is still commemorated to this day? That, to me, is pretty compelling evidence. When Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples, it is a Passover meal, and it is a meal that is infused with meaning, and that is because God's people kept watch. So much so that Jesus' disciples would later come to fully understand that Jesus is the new Passover lamb. So again, here we see God's model, his invitation to partnership. God could make himself known in whatever way he chooses through whatever method he wanted. As it says in Luke 19, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. God could make the stones cry out. He could have preserved compelling, impeccable archaeological evidence. But instead, he chooses something better. He chooses to have his people hand down the memory. He chooses to be known through his people. He invites us to be part of it. So the question for each of us this morning is, what about your own exodus? If you are a believer, you have undergone your own exodus. You have been delivered from sin. Are you keeping watch? Are you being faithful? As it says in Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children 
But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The question for each of us, are we opening our mouths in parables? Are we telling stories to our children, the story of our own deliverance? And are we uttering dark sayings? Are we telling our children about the power of sin and the death that it brings? Or are we hiding this? In closing, I'd like to just briefly return to this question of justice one more time. Earlier, we asked the question, is God's judgment just? And when we looked at the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn, we argued that it was because all were guilty, all were guilty of casting their eyes on detestable things. And in the same way, we today are all under the penalty of sin. We are all guilty of casting our eyes upon detestable things. God has the right to judge us, and it is his prerogative to extend mercy. But that does leave one question unanswered, and that is how can a righteous God leave sin unpunished? How is that just? Sin is death. God is life, and sin is the rejection of God. And sin, when you really look at it, no matter how small Every sin is the worship of death, the worship of destruction, degradation, and corruption. Sin is serious. So serious, it deserves a severe penalty. How severe? In Exodus 12, the penalty was the death of a firstborn. As a father, that's a penalty that's worse than even death, to see your child struck down. God agrees. God agrees that sin is serious, that sin deserves a severe penalty. God agrees it is a terrible thing to see your firstborn struck down. We know that God is righteous and God is just because he acts in accordance with his righteousness and his justice. This is not a God who stands aloof, who looks down at us and says, you have failed, you are unrighteous, I am going to punish you. No. This is a God who participates in that judgment. This is a God, he too gives up his firstborn son, his begotten. This is a God who gives up his son, Jesus, who becomes sin and takes our penalty for sin. As it says in Romans, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. We see the justice of God in the gospel Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God is able to pass over my sins. He's able to pass over your sins. He is able to pass over the sins of all who would place their trust in the blood of the Lamb. And he is able to do so because he puts forward the sacrifice. God gives up his firstborn so that we may be passed over. The Bible speaks of another night of watching, another night when the Lord moved across the land, bringing with him judgment and death. And that is the night in Gethsemane, the night that Jesus is arrested, the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And the words that Jesus speaks in Matthew 26, they take on a whole new poignancy in light of Exodus 12. Jesus says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Here again is a picture of God's grace. He asks us to be watchful, to be faithful. And even as we fail him, even as we slumber, God is faithful. God watches over us. Those same disciples that fell asleep, God 
is now going to the cross for them. God is still watching over them even as they fail him. God is providing the sacrifice in their place. Now, we may not like it, but the wages of sin is death. Death for sin, that is the decree. The question is, whose death will it be, yours or Christ? Judgment is coming. A lamb has been slain. Will you shelter under its blood? Let's pray. Please stand. Father God, we praise you for being a holy and just God. We thank you for your justice, as hard as it may be for us to understand sometimes. We worship you for being who you are, for being unchangeable, for your immovable righteousness. For we know that we can find refuge in your name and in your steadfast love. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood, your precious blood, that you shed in our place so that we may be passed over. We are so grateful for your mercy, for your deliverance, for freeing us from the bondage of sin. We praise you, Lord, and we love you. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts today and every day. Do not let them become hard. Help us to believe, to trust, to obey. Help us to keep watch. We need your help, and we are so grateful for the renewal that you give us. Amen.